This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Has Russia violated international law by invading Ukraine? Is Russia committing war crimes in its ongoing invasion of Ukraine? These are important questions. Is it possible to get answers? Can Russia, can Russian leaders be held to account? Now, a couple of things have happened already so far. Ukraine has appealed to the International Court of Justice in The Hague, responding to Russian allegations about, quote-unquote, genocide uh, in some of Ukraine's eastern regions and asking the International Court of Justice to order a halt to Russia's military operations. Now, also this week, Canada has announced that we are going to refer the situation in Ukraine to the International Criminal Court. Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, quote, We do not take this decision lightly. We have repeatedly called on Russia to cease its unprovoked and completely unjustifiable attacks on Ukraine and engage in meaningful dialogue. However, as the horrific events in Ukraine unfold before our eyes, it is now clear that more must be done. So joining us to talk about uh, some of these big questions and how international law applies here, uh, very pleased to welcome to the program this morning. Uh, joining us is Anthony Dworkin, who is a senior policy fellow with the European Council on Foreign Relations. Anthony, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So when we talk about the context of international law, and I mean, it, this certainly would seem like a clear-cut violation of international law, the invasion of, of a sovereign country like this, but what is the context under which we're talking about? What are the rules and the laws that apply here? Well, the first thing to say is that um, an act of aggression attacking another country is indeed a clear violation of international law. It's a violation of what many people would see as the foundation of modern international law in the UN Charter, which in Article 2.4 prohibits the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity of another state. Um, so it seems pretty clear that Russia is, uh, is breaking that kind of fundamental rule. Um, they've got some justifications of self-defense, which in my view um, are completely without merit. So that's one set of laws. Um, and then there are also a lot of laws about when you are at war, how you fight, how you use your force. Do you direct it at enemy soldiers or at civilians? Uh, those are the laws of war governing how wars are fought. And there's some evidence that Russia is violating those as well. Right, and, and not just how forces fight, but the method, right? Certain types of weapons are prohibited. I know there's been some concerns about some of the explosives that Russian forces have been using. That that would fall under that umbrella as well, then? Yes, exactly. I mean, the, the central elements of the laws of war essentially are um, that you have to distinguish between military and civilian targets, so attacking civilian infrastructure, uh, apartment buildings, uh, hospitals, schools, that's clearly prohibited. Um, using force on a scale that's likely to cause excessive civilian casualties is prohibited. And using weapons in a way that can't distinguish between military and civilian targets, these kind of massive um, 
thermobaric weapons or cluster munitions if used in an urban situation. Um, using them in that way also violates this uh, principle of distinguishing between military and civilian targets. So those are the kinds of rules that we're talking about. Right. And clearly, it, it can't be enough just to hope that countries aspire to to act within these laws. There, there needs to be something to back it up. I, I think Vladimir Putin has paid some lip service to this in, in his in a questionable justifications of this war. But more broadly speaking, I don't know that it appears that he really cares all of that much. So, you know, beyond waving a, a piece of paper and, and, you know, pointing to the fact that they violated international law or any country violates international law, how do we back this up? Right. These are obviously important questions. When it comes to aggression and the UN Charter, um, a lot of the responsibility for that, you mentioned uh, the International Court of Justice, and that's the court that deals with disputes between states. If one state has a claim that another state is using aggression against it, that would be the place. Uh, But that court has pretty limited jurisdiction. It can only hear cases essentially when both countries involved, except that the court has a role. And that's why, for instance, Ukraine can't simply take Russia to court and say you're breaching the UN Charter because Russia doesn't accept the court's role in that way. That's why we're seeing this kind of creative lawyering where they're trying to claim a breach of the Genocide Convention because signatories to the Genocide Convention automatically accept that the court has a role there. Um, But I think that's a sort of marginal case. Uh, Essentially, they're claiming that Russia is misusing the concept of genocide to justify their action. False claims of genocide against uh, the enclaves, the Russian-speaking enclaves. Um, But the the core claim, I think, beyond the, the International Court of Justice, there also is the question of the UN and the Security Council, which has the responsibility and a mandate to... Um, to be concerned with international peace and security. Now, Russia was able to veto... um This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The resolution condemning its actions in the Security Council, but the Security Council has passed that on to the General Assembly. And I think the, the debate that we've seen over the last few days in the General Assembly is significant, and the vote will be significant, not as a legal measure, but as an indication of how the opinion of the world regards the legality or otherwise of what Russia is doing. So that's on the question of the basic fact of whether the Russian invasion violates the UN Charter. When it comes to these questions of war crimes, then um, there is potentially a court that can look at that because war crimes are crimes carried out by individuals for which individuals can, in theory, be held accountable. And over the years, we've seen a number of criminal tribunals um, going back to the Nuremberg trials after World War II. And now there is this body, the International Criminal Court, which is a permanent court that exists to try war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. Uh, As a footnote, it can also sometimes try leaders for aggression, um, but for 
somewhat complicated legal reasons, not in this case. But it does have jurisdiction over potential war crimes in this conflict because Ukraine has said that it um, accepts the court's jurisdiction. So, And the court's um, prosecutor has made it clear that he wants to open the investigation. He's already been looking at what's happened in Ukraine going back to 2013, um, the protests and then the subsequent Russian action in the country's east. Um, and the fact that countries, Canada and also Lithuania, have referred that situation is a way of speeding it up. So I think very soon we'll see a formal investigation underway. And if evidence of war crimes is confirmed, then potentially cases could be developed against Russian forces and potentially Russian leaders. Well, we saw, it's been, I guess, about 20 years now, uh, the former president of Yugoslavia, Slobodan Milosevic, was on trial on charges of genocide, war crimes. So who had jurisdiction in that case? Is, is that at all potentially a parallel here? Well, that was a kind of precursor body. So I said, I, I mentioned the Nuremberg trials after World War mm-hmm. II. Um, they were uh, early kind of experiments um, in international criminal justice, uh, but they were to some degree criticized because they were only set up by the victorious countries to try the defeated countries or to try people from those countries. But the idea came back in the 1990s when we saw the, um, the wars in the former Yugoslavia, the atrocities committed there, the genocide in Rwanda. And at that point, the Security Council set up a number of um, what they called ad hoc um, criminal courts. Uh, criminal tribunals with jurisdiction over these particular cases. So there was the war crime tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and that's where Slobodan Milosevic was on trial. There was the war crimes tribunal for Rwanda. And it's really building on that precedent that we now have the International Criminal Court, uh, which is a permanent sitting body. Now, it doesn't have jurisdiction over all countries. It's a treaty-based court, so countries have to sign up to it. But once a country has signed up, then any war crimes that take place on its territory or that are committed by its citizens um, do fall under the jurisdiction of the court. I mean, we're only, you know, a week into this situation. I would assume, though, these kinds of cases are, are much longer-term propositions. Is, is there any likelihood, in your view, that, that we could see this kind of an approach have any impact in the short term? Well... Um, there's obviously um, there's been a lot of discussion about do these kinds of war crimes courts um, and potential charges do they have an impact while the conflict is going on? And I think it's unlikely that they're going to be a significant factor in the thinking of Russian military and political leaders um, right up to Vladimir Putin. Uh, partly because, as you say, the time scale is different. These cases take a long time to develop. Uh, and even once the cases are developed, it is a challenge for the court to build a case and to get its hands on suspects when the country involved doesn't want to cooperate. So they don't have a, a police force. They can't send uh, their agents into Russia to arrest Russian generals or even Putin, if he can be shown to have given these orders. So it's a kind of longer-term proposition. And what we saw in the case of Milosevic or also um, 
in the case of the former Sudanese president, President Bashir, um, who also was invited by the International Criminal Court, often it, it can it can involve waiting until there's a political change in the country, and then the country becomes more willing to cooperate. But there is no statute of limitations, and I think it's an important principle that even if the fighters and military leaders and commanders appear to be disregarding the law now, that it might ultimately catch up with them, and that the principle that no one is above the law and that these international crimes, it's really important that people should be held accountable, that is something that can be reaffirmed after the war and in the years to come. We'll leave it there. Uh, some important answers uh, to these questions, and we appreciate that much more. Uh, the European Council on Foreign Relations, ECFR.eu. Anthony, thanks again for joining us here this morning. Really appreciate the insight. Thank you. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Anthony Dworkin with the uh, European Council on Foreign Relations. He's a senior policy fellow uh, focusing on issues around uh, human rights, uh, democracy, and justice.